0: Okay, indescribable. (laughs) Sleepy, restless, right on time. If if anybody is feeling uncomfortably warm, I just want to say we used to have this retreat in February. (laughs) Many of you may remember that, the blizzards, (laughs) the icy cold winds, so it's actually kind of okay, I think, relatively speaking. So tomorrow morning, we're going to turn our attention to more formally doing loving-kindness practice. And of course, needless to say, there are any number of ways of deepening and cultivating the qualities like loving-kindness and compassion. I think that we do that even in what we've been doing. You know, that moment that we keep talking about when you realize you've been distracted is such an opportunity for self-judgment or self-compassion, right? It's one breath, it's two breaths, it's three breaths, maybe it's five breaths, and you're gone. You're just gone. Our minds jump to the past, jump to the future. We're all over the place. And then we realize that. The very common tendency in that moment would be just a barrage of self-judgment, you know, I can't believe I'm thinking. No one else in the room is thinking. Surely I'm the only one who's thinking. They're all sitting here bathed in brilliant white light. I forget the color of the light. It's some light, everybody gets. It's blue light or golden light or white light. Anyway, they have light. I don't have light. All I have is thoughts. They're not thinking. They're enlightened or they're very, very close. One little breath and they'll be enlightened. I wonder what that feels like. I'll never get there because all I do is think. They're not thinking, I'm thinking. Oh, maybe they are thinking, but they're thinking beautiful thoughts. They're thinking spiritual thoughts. I'm the one, only one who's sitting here thinking stupid thoughts, which came first, Barry Mass or Barry Vermont. I bet there's a way to find that out, but why do I care? I don't care. I'm not the mayor. I don't live here. And I'm, like, I'm so bad. I'm so terrible, right? So that's the common thing we do when we find we've become distracted. So... What's the practical consequence of that? We have added perhaps a considerable length of time to the distraction and we're so demoralized, we feel so bad that it's not really the place from which we can with a full heart begin again or you know, look for lessons learned and then apply them or make progress, move on. You know, We're so stuck and we're so depleted and uh, it's quite a difficult space. To be learning from and opening from and, and growing from. So it's, it sounds like nothing, I know, as we said before, but it is a radical thing to be able to realize you've gotten distracted, in effect to forgive yourself, to come back with compassion for yourself rather than that, that kind of very isolated and corrosive sense of blame. And we do that over and over and over again. what happens is that that self-compassion muscle actually gets stronger and stronger. So that's one way, just inevitably. We apply ourselves to something. We learn how best to get it done, which is through compassion, for ourselves to begin with. And we keep strengthening that. And we find that we're different. We also certainly develop qualities like loving kindness or compassion through insight, through understanding when we realize I didn't get that person at all. You know, I made certain assumptions about them and I held tight to those assumptions and there was no sense of connection at all and then for whatever reason I dropped the assumption or it got shattered in some way. Look at that. We're so much more like than I might have imagined or I can kind of get why their life went there, you know, why it went in that direction. My life might have too, if I'd been in their situation or whatever it might be, you know, there's just a sense of understanding, which is the ground out of which we have this sense of connection, which is loving kindness. We understand the interconnection of life. We can do, actually, let's do just for a few moments my favorite reflection um, right now together. So as you sit here, just see who comes to mind as having played any role at all in your being here in this room right now. Because no one was just driving down Pleasant Street, right? <laughs> and decided to turn in. <laughs> like, where are those cars going? We're all here because of conversations we've had, relationships, encounters, challenges. Somebody gave us a book. Somebody told us about their meditation experience. Someone told us about loving kindness. They read us a poem. And look how many people come to mind. This moment in time, like every moment in time, is a confluence of all of this connection. We didn't just arrive, isolated, cut off. It may feel that way, but every single moment is a display of how intertwined our lives are. Sometimes I do this reflection and I think about The Board of Regents of the State of New York, this government department, which gave away scholarships if you went to a state school, which is how I ended up being able to go to college. And it was through this college program that I ended up going to India. So they are really a part of why I'm sitting here right now in this room. And sometimes I do this reflection, I think about those people whose actions have really, really hurt me. Not the ones I just find annoying, but I think about those times I've really felt like I was at an edge, and I thought, you know what, I will never be free until I can work this one out in a different way, because they're part of why I'm here right now, too. I Think about the food that we ate today, and even if it wasn't a distinct animal product, somebody planted a seed in some soil and grew a crop and harvested the crop and someone transported it and prepared it and sold it, right? The Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, he has this kind of exercise he does. Like, last time I saw him was in New York City. Uh, I think it was a town hall. He's on the stage. And there's this huge, like, bouquet of sunflowers next to him and he pointed to the sunflower and he said, see all the non-sunflower elements in this sunflower, like the sun and the soil in which it grew and the rainfall which affects the quality of the soil and everything that affects the quality of that rainfall. You look at that sunflower and suddenly it's like part of a network, right, of connection. It's not just the thing in that vase. And you realize everything is like that and everyone is like that. And that we really do live in a world of connection, which isn't always pleasant. You know, It's not like a romanticized version of things. But it's true. Our lives all have something to do with one another. And the more we see that, the more there is this kind of the heart's response, which is loving kindness. So... Loving kindness, like love, is really hard to understand. I find, you know, as I said uh, last night, it's really easy to um, almost like put quotes around the word or something, and just have the sense of it being very arcane and uh, kind of a little sanctimonious. Or you don't hear people talking about it as a living challenge, you know, day to day on your commute or at work. But yet, it is. I thought once I was teaching in Brooklyn, I was about teaching this yoga center, and I, uh, I got out of the car, and these young women were walking down the street talking about loving kindness. So I thought, oh, I know where they're going. And they walked right by the yoga center, never to be seen again. And I thought, this is like the hippest problem block in Brooklyn. Everybody's talking about loving kindness. You know, but... Loving kindness is the standard term, so of course we use it. I think of it primarily as connection. It's this profound knowing that our lives are connected. That there's a sense of belonging for us because we are part of this whole. And as we look at others, we recognize our lives do have something to do with one another. It's interconnection. My friend Bob Thurman has this image he uses quite a lot, which I use even more. Uh, It's very New York. He says, imagine you're on a subway, and these Martians come, and they zap the subway car so that you're going to be together forever. (laughs) He says, what do you do? You know, if somebody's hungry, you feed them. If somebody's freaking out, you try to calm them down. Not because you necessarily like them, you approve of them, but because you're going to be together forever. Well, guess what? That construct of self and other and us and them that we might find useful at times is just a construct. The actual underlying reality, like all those non-sunflower elements in that sunflower, is that we are connected again and again and again and again. And we're moved to respond to that, to, to live in a way that takes that into account, because it's true. And that's why a state like loving kindness is actually a very powerful state. Many people think of it as sort of weak and a little snivelly or something, you know, like sentimental, gooey and phony. And, but it's empowered by the truth that it's revealing, that our lives really do have something to do with one another. That's why it's a state of strength in a state of power, because it does reflect those deeper truths. And I often say, like, when I was uh, writing my most recent book, Real Love, it actually, almost the whole book was born out of one line in this movie. Um, The movie's called Dan in Real Life, (coughs) and it's maybe like 11 years old, something like that. And a character in the movie says this. He says... Love is not a feeling, it's an ability. Love is not a feeling, it's an ability. And that so resonated with the experiences I had had in meditation practice where I realized that up until certain experiences, I'd always thought of love, connection, all of that, as being in the hands of someone else. And they could bestow it upon me, but they could also take it away from me. And if they were to take it away from me, I'd have nothing. I'd just be bereft. And I kept getting this image of like the UPS person standing on my doorstep, looking down at the package in his hand, checking out the address and saying, I don't think so, and going somewhere else. I'm going, wait a minute. Then I have nothing. But really, what if it's an ability, a capacity inside of us? It's a way to respond no matter what. It's ours. Ours to generate, ours. To offer, of course, certain people, circumstances, all kinds of things, help ignite it or threaten it. But ultimately, it's ours to tend. So it's very much the spirit of loving kindness. It's a capacity. It's an ability. I don't even like to call it a feeling. Of course, I call it a feeling all the time. But um, that's because you sort of have to describe it as something, right? But I don't know that it needs, it doesn't, I know that it does not need to be uh, an emotion as we normally categorize that. And I've seen generations of meditators really frustrated because tremendous shifts were going on within them during the practice and they weren't necessarily highly emotional, which is what people long for. You know, I want to have that big breakthrough experience. So I could say at 4.15 I loved myself completely and it was like sparkles and rapture and balloons. And you know, We want that and that's natural. But maybe our sense of kindness toward ourselves is shifting or our worldview is shifting or our fear of others is shifting or our rigid holding on to the sense of us and them is shifting. Lots of things are happening without it being that rush right and they're important important fundamental things so i have just seen so many people so frustrated and yet from the outside you think really you know there's a problem and so we come back again and again to can we disengage the the full extent of the power of loving kindness from a particular emotional strand which may be there, it may not be there, it doesn't matter. And it's part of my other plea, which is um, evaluation came up this morning and the questions, and it inevitably does. I would really urge you to do something really hard, which is just put that aside for a week and just do it, you know, just make the experiment with the practice. The, you know, the judgment will come up. I have no heart. This isn't pure love. It's so tainted. Uh, My love is so conditional. Yesterday I had pure love, but it only lasted a minute and a half. And why isn't it here for five minutes today and 15 tomorrow? And, you know, but as you see these thoughts, see if you could just say, not now, not right now. Because definitely you want to evaluate a practice and assess it and see if it's worth continuing. But one of the confounding things about loving kindness meditation, I think all meditation, but definitely loving-kindness meditation, is that whatever changes it is bringing forth may not at all reveal themselves in the course of the formal practice. Let's say you sit 20 minutes a day doing loving-kindness meditation. You may not see much difference there, but you will see a difference in your life, which is where it counts. I have one friend who took me out uh, for lunch in New York City, and it was like, like one of those confessional lunches, you know, he said I just have to confess something. So I said, "Oh, what?" <laughs> and he said, "I've been doing loving-kindness practice now as my main practice for about 3 years." And he said, "When I sit now, 3 years later, is not that different from when I started?" And he said, "But I'm like a completely different person." He said, "I'm different with myself, I'm different with my family." I'm different ethically, I'm different in my community. And then he looked at me and he said, is that enough? And I said, yeah, (laughs) I kinda think it's enough, you know? But I actually understood the question, you know? So if you can, for this week, give yourself the gift of just exploring. You're just experimenting. You're not gonna know till the end if it's something you wanna continue or not. And that's absolutely up to you, of course. Right? And that way, all of that incessant, you know, evaluation. It's like just not now. And that brings me to one of the things I wanted to talk about, which is really about the art of concentration, which we, we began last night. Um, as Lauren said, you know, sometimes the word "concentration" itself seems kind of fearsome, but in many ways for loving-kindness practice. Uh, it's one of the main engines for deepening the practice. Sometimes people have an association with concentration as, uh, you know, as he was saying, like this kind of fierce rigidity, and you kind of force your attention, you squeeze it down to hold on to some object of awareness, and then you resent and try to reject anything else that comes up, and you just get more and more tight. I was once teaching somewhere. Um, It was a (laughs) non-residential weekend and by Saturday before lunch, this man came to me and he said, how much money would it take for me to offer to you for you to promise not to use the word concentration again for the rest of the weekend? (laughs) So clearly he had one of those associations with the word. So I said, well... How would it work for you? Would it work for you if every time I said concentration, you mentally translated that as stabilize, like just stabilize your attention or gather, kind of wild energy and attention that's all over the place, just gathering, uh, or you steady your attention, would that work for you? And he said that would work. So he said, well, you just saved yourself a lot of money. You know? <laughs> Uh, Because that's the word. That's the classical translation. So we concentrate. We rest our attention. In the case of loving kindness practice, on uh, certain phrases, say, and many of you obviously know this because you all raise your hands. Um, Our attention wanders. We see if we can let go, and we come back. And then again, we see if we can let go, and we come back. I think sometimes I use the example of Like, if a car mechanic was was repairing my car and they were suddenly beset by worries about their mortgage, what I really want them to do more than anything is to say to themselves, Not now. (laughs) You know, it's doing a craft well, it's saving my life, maybe. It's, you know, uh, it's really important that that person be able to pay attention. It's not that it's wrong to think. It's not that it's wrong to think about those things. Maybe they have to sit down and really figure out their mortgage problem. But not quite now, because this is what I'm doing. right? So there's intentionality, but not like force or violence or coercion. It's out of interest. Like what happens when I, when I keep turning my attention toward this? What happens? And it might be Certainly, it can happen that, um, well, what we're looking for really is balance all along the way. Balance is the secret ingredient to many, many things. There are balance. There's balance in that kind of larger picture, which I mentioned, like sort of discovering from within the balance between loving ourselves and loving someone else or the balance between having compassion for someone and realizing... It's not in my hands. It's the wisdom to know I can't fix it. I once said to a group, I felt like if I was in charge of the universe, it would be a lot better a world. And someone in the room challenged me and they said, Are you sure? And I thought about it and I said, I am really sure. I'm like, it would be a lot better. But it's not that way. And it's never going to be that way. Right, So that's not a call to apathy or indifference or giving up. That's just wisdom. And it helps us. It doesn't harm us when wisdom infiltrates all of our efforts and our relationships and our ways of of being with ourselves and, and with one another. That's just wisdom. So we're working with balance, even if it's not verbalized, in these sort of immense ways. We're working with balance in very immediate ways because that's how the practice actually moves forward. We want not just calm and peace and relaxation, we also want some energy and alertness and interest in our experience. And we're always kind of working with, with those two facets. If we have an awful lot of calm that's cooking, and not enough energy to match it, we do go into the state called sinking mind. I call it the ooze. You might've oozed some today, actually. You know, you're just kind of there, and it's really sort of peaceful. And you're not really asleep quite, you know. But <laughs> if it deepens, you will fall asleep. It's not a bad state. It's just out of balance, you know. Like half the picture of the desired goal is really cooking but we need to pick up the energy. Or maybe you've got a lot of energy and you're enthusiastic and you're interested and there's not quite enough calm to balance it out. So you get more excited and then you get agitated and then you get worried and then you get anxious and then you get restless, right? So again, it's not a bad state. In fact, the energy is fabulous, you know, but it's not channeled. It's not useful for us when it's not balanced. And so... We learn how to balance it. And that's a lot of what happens in the practice, in any practice. We talk about balance in our posture right away. You want some energy in your body if you're sitting, but not like so much energy, you're really stiff and uptight. You also want to be relaxed and at ease, but not like so relaxed that your waist slumped over, right? So we say, feel your way into what feels like a balanced posture for you. And all along the way, we're looking at um, the nature of that balance, you intuitively and we as we ask you about your practice. Um, You know, we cultivate, we find that qualities like love deepen through practice, they deepen through wisdom, they deepen through the particular dedication to loving kindness practice. That's what it's designed for is to uncover that ability and nourish it, uh, bring it forth in a whole variety of different situations. And it it is based on being able to bring those energies into some balance so that we can can go further. So things that deepen calm, peace, we could say concentration, are things like simplicity, repetition, structure, right? That's why when we do loving-kindness practice where we choose, say, three or four phrases at most, and they become the object of meditation rather than the feeling of the breath, the anchor for the, the meditation, for the concentration. Someone once said to me, I can't remember my phrases. So I said, how many do you have? And they said about 15, And I said, no one can remember 15 phrases. No one, right? So we keep it kind of simple. The phrases need to be, you know. and we'll, of course, begin this more thoroughly tomorrow, pretty general, because if they're too precise, may I beat the traffic on Sunday, you know, Um, and then you move to offer loving kindness to a friend, it's useless. You've got to start all over again. What about you, you know, like, And that's just a lot of discursivity. That's a lot of energy, right? And we want energy because we want it to be alive and meaningful, but we don't want so much energy that we're just spinning more stories. And there is nothing easier than to do that in this practice, Um, which is why when I teach, I tend toward the side of structure, simplicity, the method, because it will give us a container Even as we work with, say, active imagination or creativity to bring that aliveness. I say that, you know, there's nothing easier because these are real relationships that we are bringing forth in our minds, and relationships are complicated. You know, we're not asked to say, um, make up an image of a homeless person in the streets of Boston or something like that. If it's a homeless person, that you're offering loving kindness to, it's someone you know or it's someone you've met or someone you've seen, right? It's a real being. And even just going through the evolution of the practice reveals the complexity of this. Over the coming days, not in every session, but you know, fairly slowly over the course of the days, but also fairly quickly, uh, we're going to move through the um, classical categories of offering loving kindness. It means we begin with ourselves and then we offer loving kindness to someone known as a benefactor. And that's somebody who has helped us. Maybe they've helped us directly sometime in life. They've picked us up when we've fallen down or we've never met them. They've inspired us from afar. This is the being who represents the power of love for us. The texts say this is the one, when you think of them, you smile. Could be an adult, could be a child, could be a pet. And if you can't think of anybody by tomorrow morning, don't worry about it. Don't despair. You can just stay with yourself or we'll figure something else out. Okay? And then we offer loving kindness to a friend. (coughs) We offer loving kindness to a neutral person. I'm going to go back and talk about that a little more in a minute. Neutral person is someone we don't strongly like or dislike. They're just kind of, eh, they're there. Right? Um, We offer loving kindness to a difficult person. And then we offer loving kindness to all beings everywhere. So this is is your map of the week. This is what the week is going to look like. And we are moving fairly quickly in terms of getting it all in. Um, It's not imagined that you're going to feel complete with everybody, you know, (coughs) or anybody, but my goal in a retreat this length is to really give you the lay of the land so that if you choose to keep doing this practice, you have some sense of that arc. Um, But anyway, so, you know, life's so complicated. Maybe offering, and many people say this, I was offering loving kindness to my benefactor and everything was going fine, and then I remembered, you know, there was that one time when I called you and you weren't really there for me. Maybe you're not my benefactor, maybe you're my difficult person. <laughs> you know, As the Dalai Lama says, quoting Shanti Deva, this great Tibetan sage, friends become enemies. Enemies become friends. Life is so changeable, it's so molten, it's so complicated. So in trying to adhere to some structure just so we can unfold the practice, I usually say choose a good enough benefactor. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. And you'll find challenges. You'll find all kinds of things happening along the way. And usually a tremendous amount of stories. Which is why I like to really go back to the concentration. Because at the same time we want the energy and the aliveness. You really don't need to be sitting here just spinning endless, endless, endless stories. Because you could have stayed home to do that, right? So... Uh, I mean, I certainly experienced that, for example, when I went to Burma in 1985, uh, and I did three months of intensive loving-kindness practice. At one point, my teacher, who was Saito Upandita, he said to me, I want you to go back to your room and offer loving-kindness to a friend. So I did that. I went back to my room, and right away I thought of this friend, and I thought, what's the time difference between Northampton, Massachusetts, and Rangoon. I think it's dinner time in Northampton. I wonder if she went out to dinner. Oh, I bet she went out to dinner. Where would she have gone to dinner? Let's see. She could have gone to the uh, Greek restaurant. She could have gone to the Italian restaurant. I don't think she could have gone to the Japanese restaurant because that restaurant closed. It's funny. Restaurants on that corner always close. This is a completely true story. I'm not making this up as I go along. Uh, I thought, why do they always close? It's really close to Smith College. It's got really good parking. There's no reason for restaurants in that spot to always close, but they always close. Maybe it's got bad feng shui. What is feng shui anyway? You know, it's like, <laughs> right? Of course, this is before the internet. If I had a computer, but uh, if I hadn't turned in my phone, <laughs> um, so. Uh, You know, that's very far from like, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. (laughs) So we do work a lot with the structure, not to have it be boring or redundant or rote, because we don't want that at all, but to give us that container, to keep channeling our energy uh, toward this intention of wishing well, of offering, of giving. And this practice really is a practice of giving. It's a practice of generosity. It's generosity of the spirit and Sometimes we go to material generosity as a kind of model because it really um, exemplifies some of the different elements that we face. We know, for example, there are lots of ways of giving a gift, right? We can give a gift that's really a freely given gift, like may you enjoy it, I hope it really brings you some happiness. We can give a gift because we want to be thanked. So right away that's layered in a different fashion. We can give a gift because we see the recipient has something we want. And we think, oh, well, you know, I'll give you this and and maybe you'll give me that. We can give someone a gift because we don't like them. And we think that what we're giving is going to really annoy them. (laughs) You know, and it's it's like the same smile, you know, and the same gesture. But the inner state, the, the motivation or the intention is completely different. right? So there are lots of ways of giving a gift. And loving kindness practice is gift giving. It's generosity. It's offering. It's blessing. That's the best description of it I can come up with. The phrases commonly, and remember these are all translations, um, are commonly phrased in a grammatical construct that makes some people uneasy. And that's things like um, may I be happy, may you be happy. The may I, the may you sounds to some people too much like pleading or imploring or begging, but it really is gift-giving, as my friend Sylvia Borstein would say. It's like you hand someone a birthday card and you say, may you have a happy birthday. May you have a great new year. It's got like some verve to it, some juice to it. It's offering. And we don't, you know, we're not like squeamish and timid in that offering, you don't really hand someone a birthday card and say, life is tough. (laughs) If you have some good experiences, I hope they're okay, you know, and like, (laughs) hope you're present enough to appreciate them, and, you know, uh, and they'll pass anyway, you know, so you might as well (laughs) gear up, like, everything's changing, and maybe there's no you either, you know, (laughs) to enjoy it, you know, you say, have a great year, Right? So that is the level on which loving-kindness practice is working. Have a great year. May you enjoy it. May you be peaceful. Okay, so that uh, sequence that I described, the classical sequence, (coughs) is based on a principle you may find mystifying, which is the idea is that we're supposed to do this practice in the easiest way possible. That I frankly found confounding myself because I was quite used to doing things in the hardest way possible but also like it's the order is based on an ancient experience I'd imagine not just a belief that you yourself should be the easiest person of all to offer loving kindness to and then as we move on um it's kind of degrees away from that, you know, a little harder, a little harder, a little harder. Um, And then that principle comes up very strongly again in the choice of a difficult person, which you don't have to start worrying about now. Uh, It's days away. Um, But they say there, too, the recommendation is that we not choose, like, the most unthinkable person who has hurt us so badly, that you can't even really imagine or has behaved or is behaving so despicably from our point of view on the world stage that you just, it's unthinkable. They say start with somebody like you're a little annoyed with. It's a little bit like strength training, you know, because what we are building up is that embodied knowledge of what it is to care about somebody's well-being and realize it's not up to me or... I'm not giving in. That would be the wrong thing to do. Or I need to care about myself as well. Something like that. You know, it's a pretty sophisticated and subtle state that we're aiming toward. And we get there, but usually more slowly than people would like. Now, I've found that in all my uh, now gazillion years of teaching. Um, I've given two meditation instructions that I find are quite related to one another that are the least popular. One is this one. You know, don't start right away with, like, this person, you know, who, it's unimaginable, really. But people don't like hearing that, you know, and I've often gotten a lot of pushback from that. You think I'm a coward, you know, I can't do it right. You're giving me a remedial practice. What do you mean? Go back to myself? You know, like, how awful is that? That's just selfish, you know. And, but it's really not. This is like, remember, it's like strength training. It's too hard. You go back to something that's easier. That's the right thing to do. That's not cowardice. That's not uh, making a mistake. That is how we do it. So I'll tell you the other instruction, even though it's it's more mindfulness instruction, because it's also I think kind of similar and it's a good life instruction anyway. So um, I said that my metta teacher, my loving-kindness teacher, was this Burmese monk named Saira Upandita. And I went to Burma in 1985 and did three months of loving-kindness with him. Well, the year before, 1984, we brought him here um, to teach a three-month retreat. And you know Joseph and I had never met him, but we heard he was a really great teacher. So we brought him over and we started sitting the next day for three months under his guidance. So that's a kind of intense thing to do, actually. I mean, these days, if you go to sit with somebody, you've heard them on line or something, you know their voice, you just have a feeling, right? It was like nothing. And he was a really great teacher, and he also turned out to be extremely fierce and demanding and tough, 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 tough teacher. And uh, it worked for me. It worked very well for me, actually, for a number of reasons. But it was intense. So um, one day he was doing a question and answer session uh, here. And somebody said to him, how long should I keep my attention on physical pain before I move my attention to something that's easier to be with, listening to sound or feeling something else? more of a relief in your body or maybe, you know, loving kindness. So how long should I keep my attention on something that's difficult, that's painful? And physical pain, remember, is also a template for like emotional pain. It's the same lesson we're learning in terms of skill of how to work with it. So it's a pretty profound question. How long should I be with something painful before I move my attention to something that's easier? And I thought, given Upandita's personality, he was going to say you should be with the pain till you fall over. I honestly did. And to my complete shock, he said, don't be with it for very long. He said, be with the pain, move your attention to something that's easier. Go back to the pain if it's still there. Move your attention to something that's easier. It's not that it's wrong to just like be with the pain and be with the pain and be with the pain, but he said you'll likely get exhausted. So why not build in balance all along the way? Because the point is not to sit and suffer. The point is to develop a different relationship to everything. Because if we actually look, we can, most of us tend to have a pretty weird relationship to pleasure, to joy, to delight, to wonder. Maybe we're so uncertain, we're so insecure that if it appears we grab it, like I've got to keep this forever, which never works, that kind of grasping. Or we... Feel we don't deserve it. So even as it's appearing, we're kind of like sort of shoving it aside in some way. Or we've got these impossible, weird, overly perfectionistic standards about how everything should be. And, you know, something great happens, but it's not good enough. There's so many ways in which we can have a a really kind of distorted relationship to pleasure. And we certainly have a really distorted relationship to pain. It's humiliating. I should have been able to control it. Why is it here? I'm the only one. It's going to last forever. This is all that I'll ever feel. Right? None of which helps and, and keeps us from opening in the kind of sense of commonality and compassion that we could have even in in the face of pain and difficulty. And we also tend to have a kind of weird relationship with neutral objects, you know, a moment, it's just a breath or, you know, it's just a sound, no big deal, not highly pleasant, not highly unpleasant. And that's when we tend to numb out, we snooze, we disconnect, we wait for something better to happen. And actually we can transform our relationship with everything. And that's the point. It's not changing what happens. You know, sometimes people think if I really, whatever technique you're using, you know, if I really meditate hard, everything will sort of flatten out and there won't be any more highs, but that's okay because there won't be any more lows. It's just this sort of gray blob. And some people long for that and other people dread it, but it's not what happens anyway. You know, so it doesn't matter. One of the core lessons, just like beginning again is a core lesson. Another core lesson is we're not so concerned with what's happening. We're very concerned with how you are with what's happening. That's the transformational field. How much presence, how much balance, how much kindness can you bring forth in the face of whatever it is that's happening? That's the whole point. That's why we say you cannot have the wrong experience in meditating you can have the experience you dreamt of maybe and it's funny you know cuz now it's like different and you know when i first came back from india for example you'd never talk about your meditation practices in terms of content or experiences and now it's kind of part of social cachet you know so what we want all of us in truth is probably to leave here leave the retreat and run into a friend and Have them say, how was it? And you say, well, you know, I was a little sleepy in the beginning, but then, I don't know, it was like this peace descended, just this unfathomable peace, and it's like, it filled me. Every cell in my body was just like filled with peace, and then the bliss came, and then the bliss was surrounding the peace, and then it was like peace and bliss and peace and bliss, and it was amazing. We don't want to say, well, I got really bored, or, you know, my knee hurt, or... uh, I kept thinking about that person who hurt me, and like, But how we are with those less comfortable experiences as well as how we are with the beautiful, glorious ones, that's the point. And that's much harder to talk about, and it's hard to measure, and you know, it's left for us to understand that that's the point, and that's where freedom really is. So people go through all kinds of things, and every level of it. you know, I used to compare. Um, meditation practice to going into an old attic there's no reason not to do it anymore I just haven't done it in about 15 years Um, meditation practice being like going into an old attic room and turning on the light and it doesn't matter if the room has been dark for a day or a week or 10,000 years we turn on the light and we see everything we see everything a human being can want and know and feel and fear it's all there and it's all okay because being with it in a different way is our goal, and we can definitely do that. So, loving kindness, um, I'd say in these years, you know, just as a, a method, as, as a topic of, of a retreat, uh, has had a couple of big controversies. One is the idea is it strength or is it weakness? If you go back to something the Buddha said, um, a kind of fundamental teaching of his is when he said everybody wants to be happy. All beings want to be happy. And not just happy in the superficial sense, but deeply happy. We want to feel we belong somewhere. We want a sense of home somewhere in this body, in this mind, with one another on this planet. We all want to be happy. And it is really difficult to figure out how. Really, we're fed so many lies and myths and fables and um, so many stories about where happiness is to be found. Endless accumulation. Demeaning others. Um, one of my favorite stories these days is about this time I, I kind of temporarily almost ruined this young woman's life because I was co-teaching this six-day program. And the first night I got up in front of the microphone and I started talking about the phrase, it's a dog-eat-dog dog world. And how awful a phrase it is. Like, don't take care of anybody else. They're not going to take care of you. You know, no one's going to give you anything. You make sure you don't give anything to them. And, you know, put them down as much as you need to to feel better about yourself. And it's a dog-eat-dog dog world. And many of us are raised with that ethic. So this young woman came up to the microphone and she said, I never knew that was the phrase. It's a dog eat Dog world. I thought the phrase was it's a doggy dog world, like D-O-G-G-Y, D-O-G, like puppies in meadows, jumping up and down, you know, and like she said, what a horrible concept. So which I agreed with. So six days went by, and last it was last day, it was like the closing morning, and she came up to the microphone and she said, I refuse to live in a dog-eat dog world. I'm gonna live in a doggy dog world. (laughs) You know, but you think about all the things we're led to believe, and we've got to disentangle that and take a look. Like, does vengefulness really make me strong? That endless obsession with someone else's faults, which I cannot change—that's a way to live a life. You know, that took a lot of time, didn't it? You know, is love really that weak, that gushy? Is compassion that stupid? And we get the chance to take a look at our own experience. And it has to be our own experience for us to have that kind of understanding. So everybody wants to be happy. It's not easy to figure it out. Therefore, our problem, collective problem, is ignorance. And that's the way to understanding how we can actually have compassion for someone even when we don't like them at all. So we look at all these flavors of loving-kindness that, that can develop and that emerge, and it's not really weak at all. And the second great controversy has to do with the idea that these qualities are trainable. You know, I think we tend to have this idea that love, as an example, is like a gift, and you either have it or you don't. If you don't, you're out of luck rather than think of it as an ability, right? A capacity inside of you that you can actually train. And it's not that we train in forcing ourselves to feel something we're not feeling. We train ourselves to pay attention differently. And it's because we can pay attention differently, which is almost the definition of meditation, that's creating the ground out of which qualities like loving kindness can emerge. And so that's very much the nature of the practice We're going to begin tomorrow. So how do we pay attention differently? The question comes up, (coughs) what are we paying attention to? Like let's say you're the kind of person who at the end of the day, whatever you did during the day, you evaluate yourself. Like how did I do today? Let's say you're the kind of person who pretty well only remembers the mistakes you made and the things that didn't work out that well and the things you could have done better, let's just say. So much so that your whole sense of who you are and all that you'll ever be just collapses around this really stupid thing you said at lunch at this meeting. So the promise, the prospect of loving kindness is accomplished almost through asking yourself, anything else happened today? Like any good within me? And we do that through the offering of the phrases toward ourselves, It's not that we're perfect, and it's not that we're in denial, and it's not that we're conflict avoidant, but usually that other side, wishing ourselves well, um, joy in our urge to be happy, uh, gets so little airtime. We're just going to change that and give it some airtime and see what happens. So what do we pay attention to? Is it pretty well only the negative? And can we expand that? And how do we pay attention? Are we really there? Are we fragmented? Are we distracted? Are we really thinking about our email when we're talking to this stranger that we met? And what if we realize that? That we're not really listening, we're not really taking them in, and we just do exactly what we do in the meditative process. We gently let go and we arrive. Here we are. In that moment, because the attention is there, the connection can emerge. Whereas if you're not paying attention, it will never emerge. So I, I found I, I pretty well always use this example of meeting a stranger and somebody said to me, you know it's the same in very long-term relationships too. You don't really listen and you think, I know how that joke ends. And you're not really paying attention with any kind of relationship, friendship or anything. And I thought, well, you know, that's actually true. So attention is, is really the most powerful conduit for the emergence of, of these other states of relating. And then the very profound question of who do we pay attention to? Who doesn't count? Who doesn't matter? Who do we objectify? Who is part of that great big other out there? Sometimes, of course, through prejudice or bias, sometimes just indifference. Like, we just don't even notice. And so, um, if you go to my website, um, uh, one of the many interesting things on it, I think, is is this really, really cute cartoon. Um, I went into a studio and recorded just some stories, and <coughs> this company, Happify.com, uh, made a couple of Uh, cartoons out of them and one of them I think is so cute because every character in it is a dog and so you see this dog's mouth move and my voice comes out of it which I think is just adorable but it's basically this story um, even though I live here I have long had different sublet apartments in New York City when I could and so this was two sublets ago I was living in a certain neighborhood and I have a friend who's a writer who's also living in that neighborhood And one day he showed me a copy of his forthcoming manuscript and in it he tells the story about going into the corner grocery store, which he went into very often and mostly it was the same woman working behind the counter. And it just struck him that he had really virtually no sense of who she was. She was a vague, vague impression. Maybe she wasn't that happy or she was a little bit grim, but very vague. And he was so shocked, he, the way he put it in the, in the book, he said, I realized that for all I recognized, she was a living, breathing human being who wanted to be happy just as I do. She might as well have been a cash register with arms. And he was so upset in himself that he said, okay, I'm going to go into the store and I'm going to pay absolute complete attention to her. So he did that, and he said the first thing he noticed was that she was singing along to something playing on the radio, and she had an exquisitely beautiful voice. So he said, wow, you have a beautiful voice. And she lit up. She just got radiant. She gave him this big, radiant smile. So I was reading this, and I thought, wow, I know exactly the store he's talking about. I know exactly the woman he's talking about. I don't really pay any attention to her either. You know, like, I go in there all the time, too, and, you know, I have a vague impression. Maybe she's a little bit unhappy or something, but very vague. So I thought, okay, I know. I'm gonna go into the store and I'm gonna say to her, I heard you have a really beautiful voice. I thought you can't really go in there and say I read you have a really beautiful voice, because that's like really weird, right? But you could say, I mean, that could have come up in conversation or something. So I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna say, I heard you have a really beautiful voice. I'm gonna watch her little bit sorrowful, grim countenance just light up and she's gonna give me this big radiant smile and I'm gonna make her so happy. So I went into the store, and the first thing I noticed was that she already had a big smile on her face. I thought, Oh, all right, you know. Like... <laughs> and I realized I did not have a clue who she was. Like maybe once I saw her looking slightly unhappy, and I froze it. That's who she is. And it was only because I actually thought about her and the quality of attention that thing shifted, right? So that's the core element, is changing the way we pay attention to include those we might normally exclude, like the neutral person, the shopkeeper, the people we look through instead of look at. And it's a very powerful means. So we work on that level of shifting the way we pay attention through the offering of these phrases, Um, and that is actually, that's the trajectory that creates the conditions for loving kindness to arise. And I would say, you know, in keeping with what I said earlier, if you choose a neutral person who's not here, if you choose somebody in your home life that you see now and then, and you don't feel anything at all while you're here, just wait until you get back there and you go to the store and then see what happened. Right? Um, so, in that way, if you can have that spirit, we're just going to have an adventure together for all these days. you're just going to do it, do it in a balanced way. You know, no one is served if you stop sleeping and stop eating and and you try too hard. that's like you know only wanting to be with the pain and not being able to move away from it and and moving back to it, uh, but really do it with a full heart, and uh, it's a tremendous gift really you'll be giving to yourself. And I really believe ultimately giving to the world. So let's sit together for a few minutes. So, thank you. We're going to have a walking period now and then uh, one more sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.